Recovery Sort Of is a podcast where we discuss recovery and addiction topics from the perspective of people living in long-term recovery. This podcast does not intend to represent the views of any particular group, organization, or fellowship. The views expressed here are solely the opinion of its contributors. Be advised there may be strong language or topics of an adult nature. Jason, I'm here with Billy. Hey, how's it going, listeners? Uh, we just, you know, got finished a nice Christmas week. I actually do have some uh, weird kind of stuff to talk about with that at some point. Might not get to it today, I don't know, because I think we got something important. You got a Christmas recap for yourself? Was it good? Mine was pretty uh, good. Yeah, ours was good. We went and spent some time. I have an older daughter with a disability who lives up in Massachusetts. Um, she is not to get too off track, but she's up there basically because here in Maryland, they didn't have adequate housing, adequate placement mm-hmm. for her. She was in some different placements here in Maryland that went uh, catastrophically bad. So we ended up finding placement for her up in Mar- up in Massachusetts, and she's been up there for about 12 years now. Mm-hmm. So we end up going up there for Christmases a lot. What we've typically done in the past is we spend Christmas day, Christmas morning at home, we go meet with my wife's family, then we drive up to Massachusetts. This year was a little different. We didn't have any plans before Christmas, so we went up early, and we got to, we rented an Airbnb, which is our first time staying in an Airbnb. That was really cool. It was like a house, yeah. you know, instead of staying in a, in a, you know, resort or a apartment, you know, not an apartment, a, a hotel, we were able to get a house, and so it was a little more homey, a little more comfortable, um, and we got a Christmas tree, and we had her stay with us at the house so we all got to get up christmas morning and open presents you know as a family together so it was pretty cool we got to take the dog uh so our dog was up there with us and it was really nice we had a great time great visit um so yeah it was pretty fun that's awesome man yeah mine in general was pretty good uh like i said there is a little bit of weird stuff i I, we might get to at some point maybe today next year who knows um but i think we're here today to talk about death uh and more specifically overdose and and you know uh some of the somber parts of that i believe you wanted to lead with that (laughs) yeah so we saw um a young lady who we've known uh a long time Mm -hmm. over the years in recovery we've known her family um her name was autumn and found out that i guess the day before christmas she overdosed and died and uh you know it just in in such a small rural area as we are in, um, it just seems the amount of overdoses is extreme. You know, how, how often these people that we know and love in our communities are overdosing and dying. Mm. And uh, over the years, you know, I've grown up and used here in Cecil County for, you know, my whole adult life since I was 12. So I've been here over 30 years now and done all my using here. And, you know, through my growing up, I mean, it just didn't seem like people were overdosing the way that they are now. And so, you know, in the last couple of months, um, 
I've kind of done my own little bit of research into fentanyl and, and what's happening with all that, why people are overdosing and stuff. But um, in this case of Autumn, you know, as a family that we've known for a long time, like say over 15 years, known her since she was really young, um, watched her struggle, watched her come in and out of, you know, abstinence space recovery and doing some different things and seeing you know, at times the relationships with their family get better and then back to using and things get really worse and then back to better and that sort of roller coaster. And uh, as someone who's known her and her family, you know, you're always hoping that that's going to end for the best. You're always mm. hoping that, you know, what's going to be that one thing that's going to get them into, you know, some sort of recovery pathway that's going to stick and it's going to work and right. that they're going to make it. And, uh, in this case, you know, she didn't. And it was heartbreaking. It really was upsetting. I wasn't that close to her, but I think it's just a little piece of your, like, your hope for that kind of stuff working out well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, that's super, super cold uh, saying that I've heard before, that, like, everybody gets clean. It just some of us are alive when it happens, right? Um, I didn't know her specifically well, but uh, obviously, you know, her brother was one of the people that we did the meditation with. And that's like still kind of why we meet up on Sunday mornings before we talk, we meditate. And uh, it, it is heartbreaking, man. Um, you bringing that up, I had kind of forgot about it. And I think I saw that news Christmas Eve morning, maybe. Yeah. And, and just the tragedy of, of having to see that. Um, and, and just this morning when you brought it up, it brought up like some of the people that I've been close to that I've lost um, throughout my life. And this was, I don't know if fentanyl was involved, but most of these were pre the fentanyl era as we know it. That doesn't mean it wasn't in existence or, or a part of it. It's just we weren't looking for it then. Um, one of them, a girl I dated at like the age of 17. And apparently like, uh, I mean, we were pretty close. I lived with her for a while. I think she was pregnant and had a miscarriage while we were together. I ended up locked up with her brother for a year or something. Like, we were pretty close. And she had been into the rooms for a little while and then left. And uh, she ended up, it wasn't from a, a, an overdose specifically, but, a, you know, a liver failure at, like, the age of 26. Mm. And it's like, damn, dude, this was somebody I went to elementary school with, right? And at the age of 26. And there was another young lady in our neighborhood and a, I think she was an overdose and she was like 23 when, when she died. And um, a member of my home group that came out and, and ate dinner with us one night uh, passed on. And then, uh, you know, how many people have asked me to sponsor them and maybe never done any of the work as a sponsee. But then, you know, you hear about them. One in particular stands out. He was a he had gone back out and relapsed for a while and then he had came back. Right. And he had like a month. And then the next week I hear that he's not here anymore. Um, and just, the, it's sad, man. It's yeah. sad to watch these people go. Uh, one of the guys who thank God is clean today, uh, a good buddy of mine, he got almost a year and then went back out. And then I'm hearing stories about how he's trying to raise his three kids and they're like, don't really have any electricity turned on in their house. And, and they're all school age kids. And then like, I'm like, damn, how is he the next one? Right. And then one of those things you got to worry about. And I, and I guess, that just comes with the territory. I, I don't know. I, you mentioned something about how we I don't know, cut people off, maybe when yeah. they when they leave the rooms. I don't know that that's specifically what we do, but I could see that sentiment. Yeah, and I think I was thinking a little bit about that on the ride here. So, 
early in recovery, I think we sort of go into a survival mechanism of, you know, cut off all your old friends, cut off all people that are using, surround yourself mm. with people in recovery, build a new network of friends, you know, and it's a, it's a safety line. Right. And, uh, sort of some of those sayings I've heard over the years is, you know, for using people, it's like trying to save a drowning victim. Like if you just run out there into the water, it's more likely that you're going to get drowned than that you're going to be able to save them. Right. And, you know, that mentality, uh, I would say early in recovery is like a survival mechanism. You know, Mm. you don't want to put yourself in those bad places. You don't want to put yourself around people that are using, um, and then somewhere along the line, I think, though, that attitude in most of us, I don't want to say needs to change, but should change. <laughs> right. To where, so this is an interesting question, not to get too far off of that, but uh, because it kind of ties in of like, so what do we consider like our recovery community or our recovery family? Like are using people part of our community? Should they be part of the conversation when we're talking about? recovery um and i don't i don't know you know are they only part of the conversation if at some point in their journey they've sought recovery then they become part of or you know how does that how do we sort of work Mm. in you know actively using people into this conversation of recovery so this is really tricky right so from a social work standpoint we're taught that uh we should never go out and decide how to help people we should always include you know, the uh, oppressed or, you know, in need population as part of the solution. Like, hey, what could help you? Not what do we come in and tell you how we're going to help you, right? And so in this instance is where it gets really weird because at least for me, I want to speak for all, you know, using people everywhere, honestly, but I I can't. For me, I didn't have any real good ideas when I was getting high, right? So like coming to me and asking me what would have helped me, I would have gave you some really terrible ideas like methadone for me would have been terrible because that's what I wanted. I wanted somebody to allow me to use and enable me to do that every day for the rest of my life. And I'm not trying to down people who use methadone as a source of recovery. But for me, I wanted an easier, softer way, whatever that was. And so, yeah, my ideas should not have been taken into consideration personally uh, when I was high. Yeah. And when we come into at least the, fellowship that you know what i came in the message i seemed to get was in fact the opposite like sit down and shut up you don't know what you need right you know what i mean if we don't have any good ideas yeah if we want to know where the cop will ask you right Right. you don't have any good and so what you need to do is come in sit down shut up listen to us and we'll help you right and so and that saved my life because that is what i needed at the time right um but I guess there's a part of me nowadays, maybe I'm softer or maybe it's because so many people are overdosing and dying. That's that's a little less, you know, it's a little more open to maybe this isn't the only way for everybody. And maybe abstinence, you know, it's great for me and I wouldn't change it for the world. And, and you know, I think it's a great pathway for anyone that's looking for that. But I also don't think it's the only thing out there. And, you know, if it comes into, you know, You can whatever, smoke weed and go to therapy and get what you need that way, but you're going to stop tricking on the street or stop shooting dope or stop, you know, being a complete menace to yourself and society. You know, fuck who am I to say that's not 
an improvement in your life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have no. no right to say that. But I'm I've been you. trained in, in I can't say trained. Maybe this goes back to the brainwashing. Brainwashing, thing. right. I've been trained to believe that abstinence-based recovery is the only way. And that, you know, if you're making decisions under the influence of any chemicals, like you're just fucking stupid. Well, yeah, no, no, I absolutely agree. That is definitely uh, the view of the fellowship. I don't think it views anybody negatively like you're, you're stupid, but it definitely the view is the ultimate goal is complete abstinence from all mind and mood altering substances, right? Um, I know from a therapy point of view, while we will probably respect that you might need to use a chemical or you choose to use a chemical, whether it's marijuana or alcohol, like if you come into a therapy session intoxicated in any way we generally ask you to leave and come back without that because we don't believe we can do the work we need to do with you while you're on that so that almost tells me something right about uh being on those substances at least from that perspective um i will say this i completely i probably there was probably a point in time in my life i can almost guarantee it where i was like yeah complete abstinence is the only fucking way everybody else is bullshit right that's not what i believe today i believe any improvement in your life on any given day, if that's the best you got, that that's fucking great, right? It's an improvement closer to the, but I can't say that my theory of complete abstinence being the ultimate end goal has changed, right? Yeah. If the best, if the best you got today is being able to go to work and provide for your family and take a methadone every day. Awesome. Fucking do it. I still think we're working towards something though. I don't think that's like the end goal right there. I don't think we're like, Hey, we're on methadone. Cool. 80 more years of this and then we'll die. Perfect. And so this is where I struggle because I agree with you, but I am really challenging my thinking on this. So mm-hmm. I'm going to challenge yours. Okay. Um, so let's take, you know, marijuana or whatever. Let's take a chemical like someone who's on uh, antidepressant or an mm-hmm. antipsychotic. Like they are on a chemical. Right. They're on a substance. We've just decided that that particular substance, because it's prescribed by a doctor and because the doctor says they need it and because it, quote unquote, balances out their mental health, that that is completely fine. And then you can be on that chemical because this doctor said it's okay, And then we'll do whatever you can be clean. I guess that's clean. You would never tell a mental health person, hey, if you really want recovery, you got to stop taking your mental health meds. I mean, maybe there are some people that would probably say that, but but that is... (laughs) Uh, you know, even to a diehard abstinence-based person, like that's dangerous. That is Absolutely. that is deadly information to give to someone with a mental illness. That has been passed around. I, I've heard it too, and it's scary. <laughs> it's very scary. Um, but that is definitely bad, bad advice. Um, so nowadays that we are becoming more open. So there, there seem to be this old uh notion that street drugs, quote unquote, street drugs were bad, but that pharmaceutical drugs from a chemical company were good and that were okay. And I think now we're in a generation where we sort of understand like, no, wait a minute. It doesn't, you know what I mean? Chemical effects on the brain are chemical effects on the brain. And it doesn't matter if you get it from a natural plan or not. And there's debates on what's better and worse and all that. But the chemical effects on the brain, you know, I don't want to say are the same, but you know, whether a drug is a natural drug or a, pharmaceutically manufactured drug, I don't think change that conversation. Like you're still on a substance for your mental health. And so there are large 
amount of people out there right now that would argue like something like marijuana is good for PTSD and some other things. And right. so if they're taking that under the prescription of a doctor, is that okay? And uh, so, <laughs> you know, that's where this, the trickiness to some of right. this comes in. And so, yeah, uh, there was definitely a point in time in my life where my belief was um, that a lot of the maladies we might experience might be able to be solved through uh, some sort of spiritual relationship, right? And that lacking that spiritual relationship might have been the cause of it. And then we chose these other ways to fix it more like band-aids than, uh, you know, preemptive strikes against whatever was going on. I can't say I totally buy into that anymore. I'm not really sure. I don't know where that begins and ends. Like, can that, you know, God treat everything? I don't fucking know. Right. I don't have these answers anymore. What I will say from my experience is I fought uh, a lot to not ever have to take my antidepressant. I did not want to do it. Um, and I, at the end felt fucking beat and like I had tried everything else and nothing worked. And so I, I did, right. I surrendered to the idea. I took it. Um, it, it definitely changed my life, right. It gave me the ability to do some other things in my life to find some other methods of coping. And at some point I was able to stop taking it. Right. And I, I don't know if that's the ultimate goal or not, right? Is the ultimate goal that maybe we do need these uh, things at some point in time in our life and then hopefully one day we don't? Uh, or, or do we believe that it's we need it for the rest? I don't really know. I can tell you this. If I ever felt the same way again, I'd get back on it, right? I'm not going to fuck with my hating my life again or, or being miserable and thinking I don't want to be here. Um, but I am generally a slightly different person without it. And I like that person better. Yeah. And, you know, just to get back to the fellowship conversation a little bit with some of that. So I've always had conversations, what I would say kind of candidly with people about that stuff. Like I don't believe, you know, the fellowship that we go to or that, that I participate in, like I'll tell people all the time. I don't necessarily think it's for everybody. I don't, it can help anybody, but it's not for everybody because not everybody's looking for the same things that we're offering, you know, through that work. Like right. I say, not everyone's goal is abstinence based for the rest of their life. Some people want something else. And quite candidly, I've said to a couple of people, guys that I've even sponsored, like, look, maybe you need to check out some other stuff. Like maybe mm. this isn't where you need to be, you know, because huh. You know, all you're going to do is come in here and get yourself let down and disappointed and because you're looking for something that isn't what we have to offer. And me as a sponsor, I feel like if you're looking for something that I don't have to offer you, then I am not enough of an egomaniac to think that I can give it to you. There probably was a point in my life where I thought I was. But nowadays I know like, no, look, this is all I got to offer. All I got to offer is this abstinence-based lifestyle through the application of these 12 steps. If that's not what you're looking for, you know, great. I'm, it's not a judgment, but it's right. like, that's, I don't have that experience to offer you. Um, but the flip side of that is as a, a fellowship, you know, how do we stay connected to the recovery community? How do we stay connected to, you know, the still suffering addicts and still offer a viable pathway for people that are looking for that. Because there are a lot of people that are looking for abstinence space. There are a lot of people that don't want to be 
you know, on a chemical for the rest of their life. And uh, I think for the protection of the fellowship that we belong to and our traditions and, and what we are, um, abstinence base is a crucial part of that. Abstinence base is what we are. It's what we have. That's what we do. But I think you can do that in a still loving and caring and welcoming fashion. And for me, that's part of where that 12th step comes in of like, you know, um, practicing these principles in all the affairs of my life. And it's like the same compassion and empathy and love that I can give to, let's say, a fellow home group member who I know is relapsed or is struggling with relapse. When that guy comes in, you know, like I can empathize with him. I can feel his pain because I know what that's like to be trying to stay clean, to be doing your best and then make a fucking bad choice and go out there and use and be like, fuck, man, this isn't what I wanted. To, you know what I right. mean? How did I get back here again? You know, right. and, and I can empathize with that pain and recognize that. But a lot of times I'll look at the guy out on the street who's not in the meeting and I don't have that same empathy for him, you know, mm, because he's not trying you think is that what you're asking um, why don't why is it different? well that's been so i would like to say my growth through working steps in a 12 step is to look <laughs> at that person and see that same to try to give them that same compassion and empathy and love and right. to see the guy out on the street and think man you don't have to live that way and to get over you know just like our experience with that young man who approached us outside the restaurant like i would love that to be my first initial response (laughs) to just be loving and compassionate and caring. And I think the more that, you know, I can do that, the more welcoming it is uh, to people that are struggling um, for how to find recovery. Yeah, man, there's just so much about this that I I just don't know. Like I can't, I can tell you that abstinence-based recovery works for me, right? And I truly believe it's the only thing that would work for me effectively. but I can't know that, right? I can't go out and try some other method of recovery of like, oh, hey, I'll just smoke weed on a weekly basis <laughs> right. and see how, like, I can't do right. that for me. Um, and so I can only speak from one perspective. And that's what makes this conversation so hard. Uh, the other part of that tricky equation is that, and I, and I keep saying, like, I would choose the softer, gentler way. And I, I, I kind of fucking hate saying that because I feel like it's a put down to anybody who's on that method of, you know, that mode of recovery, because I'm not trying to say that what you're doing is not awesome or great. I'm not. I just know for me, if you just said, hey, uh, you can lose weight by eating vegetables or you can lose weight by eating this cake that we've fucking chemically made that will help you lose weight. I'm going to eat the fucking cake. Right. I'm not going to, you know, the cake might give you uh, diarrhea and make you throw up every once in a while. But generally, it'll still work the same as the vegetables. Well, fuck the vegetables then. Right. I always want the way that feels better for me. And so. I'm not trying to put anybody else down. It's just if you keep offering me uh, uh, a way that doesn't seem as painful, right? Because the pain I was using to cover up some pain. Right. And, and so I did not want to feel, right? I didn't understand how to feel and I didn't want to feel. And if you continued to offer me a way that numbed some of that pain, I was going to continue to take that uh, and I was not going to choose to get clean. Yeah. And so I, that's where I get fucking lost in all this. Like... And so I think some of that now that's that's funny because you said that and I'm immediately it reminded me of the circle back to overdose and how that happens. And I think that's exactly, you know, the case for a lot of people is they 
come into recovery, you get a few weeks, a few months clean, and you start feeling the pain of living and, and mm-hmm. refeeling all the reasons that we started getting high in the first place. You know, for most addicts, you know, I think the the reasons we use tend to be pain or uh, some sort of internal suffering. Um, and then we get clean and we start to feel that all over again. Not only that, but then you're left with the wreckage and the damage that you've done, you know, from whoever you've robbed, stole, cheated, whatever, right. you know, financial, emotional, legal ramifications that you have. And you got to deal with all that. And it, it, it's like, fuck this, you know what right. I mean? Like this is overwhelming and I don't know if I can do this. And so what typically I, the story kind of goes that someone comes in, they get a couple days, couple weeks, couple months. Um, they go back out, they use overdose and die. And parts of the reasons I've heard for that are, you know, one, when they've been disconnected from the using community for a couple of weeks, they go out and they have to find sort of a new connection or there's a new batch of stuff out there. It's not the same as what they had been using before they come right. a little stronger or their tolerance is a little lower and the same amount that they were using before is too much and they overdose and die. Um, you know, one of the things with this new, uh, outbreak of fentanyl is that the you know it's being cut into heroin you know differently by different places you know that the levels of fentanyl in each batch aren't the same so the potency is so strong that you know a little bit more can cause you to overdose very small amounts can cause you to overdose um and as we see that happen, you see more and more people sort of, like say, find that, get a couple days, a couple weeks, go out and use, then they overdose and die. Right. And, uh, I don't, I don't know how we can stop that, you know? I mean, well, that's not true. There are some things we can do to stop that. Um, but I think that's where a lot of the harm reduction stuff comes in. And as a person in abstinence-based recovery for a long time i fought that whole thing like i thought you know like any of that harm reduction strategies are all enabling um i was brought up in the 90s when it was like the tough love and uh you know like that was it you know oh you're gonna use i'm gonna kick you out of the house and fucking not talk to you anymore and you know totally disassociate until you get better when you get better i'll have you in my life again right and uh, that was sort of what we thought would work. But I think what we're figuring out is just like trying to arrest our way out of the problem of addiction, that hardcore, hardline, you know, tough love doesn't work either. We can't lock up enough people to beat addiction. What are you talking <laughs> yeah. about? Um, but one thing real quick, I, it reminded me of, I was thinking of this as well. I used to watch that show Intervention all the time. I don't know if you've seen it. It was a reality TV show on A&E no. where, oh, it's great. They, I mean, it's Jen would hated watching it. She's like, we live this every day. How do you do it? It was people that were using and they would find an interventionist person, probably from a treatment center or a mental health facility that would come in and help them, you know, sit a person down with their family and they do like an intervention and give that person the option to go to treatment, you know, and that was basically the gist of the show. And then the end of the show was whether those people would go to treatment or not, whether they would stay clean or not. Um, and they wrapped it up into a nice hour. Right. And it was 
a lot of, I hate to say this, it was a lot of uh, exciting TV based on watching people's downward spiral right. in addiction. It was Drama. glorifying using is a mm. lot of what it was. Um, for me, I didn't watch it for that. I watched it because it was sad. It tugged at my heartstrings mm. and early in recovery. I just wanted every fucking buddy to get it, you know? Thought everybody deserved to be clean. Right. Um, but anyway, in one of those shows, they had a lady and she was telling a story of her daughter who was an addict and they did the whole tough love thing and they kicked her out and you can't live here and, you know, we're not going to support you while you're using. Her daughter went out on the street, started living basically on the streets at 17, 18 years old, started prostituting. They got a call one night to come to the hospital, basically, and identify her body. That she was out tricking somebody, you know, beat her. In essence, they thought to death, left her for dead on the side of a road somewhere. And uh, her parents went in and said, couldn't even recognize her. Like her face, her whole face was swelled up. She was beat, you know, like say almost to death. She was in a coma, I think, for a couple of days. And in any case, the daughter came back, you know, got better. And so now she was living with the parents who were, in essence, enabling her. They were literally, the mom was going out and buying her dope and bringing it back to her. And she said, I would rather have her using and alive than dead and clean, you know. And that was probably the very first time, because at that point I had a couple small kids. My kids were still pretty young, but I had, you know, a couple young daughters. And I understood that. And I thought, wow, like... Because up till that point, I always thought I would be the tough love dad. Like, you're going to do this. I'm not going to support you. Get out of my house. Right. And then I thought, wow, I don't know if I would do that, you know. And I might be the enabling parent who was out by my Would I really want to see my daughter out on the streets tricking? Like, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> With that in mind, uh, let's take a quick break and, and we'll go to our ad real quick. And then we'll come back and talk some more about that. This episode has been brought to you by Voices of Hope, Inc., a nonprofit grassroots recovery community organization located in Maryland. Voices of Hope is made up of people in recovery, family members, and allies. Together, members strive to protect the dignity and respect of those that use drugs and those in recovery by advocating for treatment, support resources, and mentoring. Please visit us at www.voicesofhopececilmd.org and consider donating to our cause. Uh, so, hey, we're back. Um, just in line with, with some of what you were just talking about with, you know, the intervention show. I, I remember uh, my sponsor for many years, his son continued to use and get a little bit of clean time here and there, but then go back out. And, you know, my sponsor shared with me that he has taken his son to cop before and that he has given him money knowing damn well it was going to be used for drugs and all this. And I was never judgmental harshly, I guess, over it, but I, I did kind of have some thoughts about it. Oh, right? yeah, I totally would. And, and, uh, <laughs> but he said, hey, you know, I, I get I get what you might think about it, but when it's your kids, you might think differently about it. And and I have I took that into consideration because I do know that my mind has changed when I've been in situations <laughs> before. Uh, and it is tricky. And I, and I guess, so some of that sort of relates to what I was going through at Christmas, right? I had this really fucking heartwarming incredible Christmas where I was like so connected to my family. Just, I really fucking felt it. And it was so intense. It was actually scary. Like I literally 
went to therapy and was concerned about how intensely mm-hmm. I felt good about this Christmas. It was fucking weird, dude. To the point where, like, the thoughts of our time together ending in any way, shape, or form, whether that through tragedy or just the fact we had to go back nice. to work next week, actually made, like, my internal organs ache a little bit. Mm. I was like, what the fuck, right? And so, uh, just talking about that, it, I didn't want to say anything about it, right? Look, if I want to go get high and shoot some heroin and cocaine, I know right where to go where people will say, me too. I don't know where to share this where people can identify. I'm like, nobody fucking feels that. That's weird, right? <laughs> And I was encouraged to be vulnerable and shared and who the fuck knows who could relate to that. But it was really powerful. But some of it, I think, is that my daughters are getting older, right? They were 14. They weren't as super into the excitement of Christmas. And I think there might be some concern of like, I'm running out of time with them Mm -hmm. as kids, right? They're not going to be kids anymore. They're going to go into high school next year. And of course, there's always the fears that any of my children might end up using drugs because, you know, we have the same DNA in some way, shape or form. And it's fucking terrifying. It's terrifying. I don't know what I would do to keep them alive. But you're right. I would much rather have them alive with the chance of something else than fucking dead, dude. Yeah. And I was thinking back to like growing up, you know, I used and had an obvious drug addiction problem from my early teens. I think I got arrested the first time when I was like 16 uh, for drugs and alcohol. Um, And my family, so my mom was always close to her four sisters and they all talked. So it wasn't like we kept it some big hidden secret from the family. Like my whole fucking family knew my aunts and uncles and I'm sure my cousins. And it was like, you know, it wasn't a big secret that I was struggling with addiction. Right. Um, Definitely growing up. And I remember going to like, you know, my family's Christmas parties or my parents' house and being high and and probably what I would say, obviously high or drunk and good or bad. Now I look at it as good. um, I didn't ever feel like I was judged or shamed or, you know, made to feel less of a person by them. Um. My wife and I have talked about that at times. I used to kind of look at it like, well, my parents just ignored all the obvious Uh, problems that no one ever wanted to talk about the problem. We just ignored it and acted like it didn't exist. Right. And I looked at it kind of as a bad thing. Like, well, maybe if they would have pulled me up on some of that or somebody would have talked to me and said, hey, look, this is a road you're going down. This is dangerous. This is bad. It might have been different. Nowadays, I look at it very differently. Nowadays, I actually look at that as a blessing because I don't feel like if they would have shamed me or tried to embarrass me or humiliated me in some sort of way, I don't think that would have helped. Right. And in fact, it's the other way around because I was loved and supported, not just by my parents and my immediate family, but some of my extended family. You know, I knew that people loved and cared about me. And I think that's a big part of overcoming addiction. Like what we, society, I think outside of people in recovery in the treatment world don't understand that addiction is way bigger than just the chemical hooks of, you know, you're on these drugs. If you just stop taking these drugs, that fixes all the problems that we can just lock people up for 30, 60, 90 days and they'll be fine. Like that's not what addiction is. Um, It's a lot of the emotional and mental aspects of addiction that keep us hooked, not just the chemical, physical hooks. And 
you know, having love and support of, even if it's not your family, but a community, which is, I think, where 12-step fellowships come in. Right. You know, they can be that support, that understanding and compassion if you're not getting that at home. But having those pieces is crucial for people staying connected in recovery. Just to speak to my own experience with uh, addiction, not just being the drugs, uh, it's been officially over a month since I quit vaping and I still regularly think, what the fuck else am I going to do? <laughs> right? Like, what can I put in place of that? Should I smoke a black and mild here and there? Like, why do I need to replace it with anything? Right. But that's the, the hook right. of the addiction. It's not even about the chemical anymore. The chemical has been gone. Right. I just want something to do. Mm. Um, I pray more, obviously. Uh, so I think another thing of what you're talking about, uh, and you, I don't think we've said this here. You said it before we started recording was about, in the fellowship, when people use or relapse or whatever you want to call it, we almost sort of cut them off, right? Um, or we have a tendency to really not want to be around it. And I can understand that early on. Uh, I think it's, you know, definitely the saying of they'll get you high before you get them clean. I've heard that one. Um, I don't know, though. I don't know that that's the wrong thing to do. I really don't. I have no idea here. I know a lot of people don't want to be around people that are high. I don't know that high people are really hearing anything that's going to, you know, I don't think they're very open-minded to hearing something new. And this all really comes back to me or for me to the point of, I don't know that I could have ever done anything different. Right. And what I mean by that is uh, we say in our meetings, oh man, well, if you're not going to a meeting every day, that's why you're not fucking getting clean. Or if you're not choosing to work the steps, that's your fucking problem. Or if you use, that's because you chose to pick up and, I don't know if I fucking believe that. Honestly, I've been to NA before I got clean. And, and what I found was it was a bunch of dorks that were trying to live life without getting high. And I couldn't relate. Right. And it wasn't until I had that moment of clarity, which I kind of look at for me as something external. I think that was something that was sort of given to me by something bigger than me. Right. I don't know that I could have made any decision to stop using before that moment. And so I don't really look at getting clean as a personal choice of mine. I kind of look at it as a higher power given experience. And so for that, I, I just, I don't know that I can share in a meeting of what you need to do to stay clean. Cause I don't know if you can possibly do that before your time is right. Yeah. Does that make any sense? Well, I never know what I think someone <laughs> needs to get clean. Like, right. Because I mean, it's, Everyone's different. Everyone's unique. What I only know what worked for me and what I did. And I've felt like I've given that fully to some people and they've used and, you know, I felt like I've watched people that have done far more than me use. I've watched people that have done far less work than me stay clean. So, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know what works. Um, I try to take some general direction from the fellowship and then apply the principles personally to my life. Um, what I will say, though, in, in defense of at least the fellowship that we go to is there are some sort of caveats that they set for doing what, in essence, are called 12 step calls mm -hmm. or going out to help, you know, people that may be actively using or that are struggling or when you get those phone calls from people that are using and uh, one of those that has always been a big thing that I've been told is that you never go into those situations alone. You take someone with you. Right. And I think that, you know, those setting up some of those th things will help use the word protect you from the influences of using if you take someone with you to, to do it. 
Um, I definitely know that it's easier for, it would be way easier for me to be in those situations now than it would have early on in recovery. I would be much more likely to go do that type of work now than I would early in recovery. Right. Um, and I think just having a stable program with good supports and, you know, another recovering, strong <laughs> recovering person with you to help you are ways that we can go into situations with people that are using or, you know, maybe reach out to people that are using, show up at their house, um, you know, go try to quote unquote rescue people. <laughs> is there, and this kind of the whole intervention, everything is there, can you help people that aren't ready to be helped? Is there such thing as a person being ready to be helped or like, could we take anybody on the street who, who's not seemingly ready at all and honestly just lock them away what for whatever for a year right and then they come out and they're ready or will they go back to using until they've actually hit a certain ready point well, i don't think just anybody and there was uh i won't get too into sort of how i know this number but there's a like 10 to 15 percent of actively using addicts are like legitimately chemically hooked that are just have the chemical hooks and they know this from some different studies with like nicotine patches and the success rates of those things right. they know looking at some um statistical studies on how uh mat's work you know it's, it's sort of like they figure there's this 10 to 15 percent window of people that their problem really just is the chemical hooks and what i mean by that is they went in for a surgery they got on some pain medications now all of a sudden they're addicted and if you can just break them of that chemical piece, they'll be fine. They'll be able to go on, live the rest of their life and, and not need therapy or treatment or really? mental health counseling. One yeah. in 10. Uh, that's, that's impressive. The, and like I say, that's not based specifically on opioid, you know, addiction or anything. It's based loosely mm -hmm. off some studies of other chemical intervention type programs like say like nicotine patches right. or fentanyl patches or those kind of things mm -hmm. um so they say it's you know 10 to 15 percent of people are just more chemically hooked than the other stuff but what that lets you know is that you know 85 to 90 percent of the people have some sort of mental health issues spiritual emotional issues whether it be abuse you know neglect different childhood traumas all of those things factor in. So with a lot of those people, um, you can't just take away the drugs and they'll all of a sudden get better. Um, so more directly to your question is, I don't think you can just go take anyone off the streets and have mm. success. Um, as we see, like in this small community, if you go out and talk to what I would say a uh, big percentage of the homeless community, who are also struggling with addiction, most of them, mm -hmm. um, you'll find that there's a lot of mental health issues there. Right. You know, within a very short amount of conversation, you'll figure out, oh, wait a minute. You know what I mean? Like this person isn't mentally healthy. So, you know, no, if you just pull them in and throw them into treatment without continuing supports beyond that, whether it be getting them on some sort of psychiatric medication, some of them just need to be in some sort of assisted living facilities that at the moment don't even exist. Mm. Um, I think from the political uh, viewpoint, like that's 
why it's so hard to get things passed in with politics because everybody wants that one thing that's just going to fix it. And there's not just one thing that's going to fix addiction. You got to take each person, figure out what it is, you know, why are they using, why are they doing what they're doing, and then what do they need to get better? And I would guess, and this is just me making shit up, I would guess <laughs> I like that, that probably half the people out there, especially in this, you know, opioid disuse disorder, whatever the words we say now are, right? you know, where we see this large, you know, influx of middle class, you know, urban or suburban, you know, people, mostly white people, um, that a lot of these are just social ailments. Like there are things that can be fixed with abstinence-based recovery, maybe a little bit of therapy and counseling, you know, and that right. a large percentage of that, you know, really just needs those things. There's also um, a large percentage of addiction comes out of poverty. Like poverty is a huge issue that we don't associate with addiction, but yet it's rampant. You know, addiction is rampant in the lower income community. Right. You know, because it's suffering. And so, yeah, if you take someone who's got, you know, sort of no money, who's living in one of the lesser communities in the area, if you just take them, get them clean and throw them back into that same environment, there's nowhere for them to thrive. You know, there's they still don't have the job training. They still don't have the life skills training. They still don't have, you know, the necessary skills to go out and be successful in the world. So they're going to turn back to using because life is hard and it's fucking, right, <laughs> they right. don't have the skills they need to survive. I think you just uh, created a topic in my head that I'd love to cover on here one day. And that's what the fuck is addiction and where does it come from? Mm. Right. Cause I got some theories of my own uh, and I know there's probably as many theories as there are fucking people. So uh, just listen to a whole book on it. It's called chasing the screen. I'm an audio books person. So when I say listen to a book, that's right. I got you. But it's called chasing the scream. And it's kind of about that whole process of addiction. It's pretty good. Billy's, Billy's lying. He's actually very rich, and he pays someone to stand next to him and read books to him. <laughs> That's how he listens. Uh, no, but I, I, you know, I do have a particular theory about where addiction comes from. I don't know how much fucking credence it has, or if anybody's ever tested it, or if they can. But that would be an interesting topic one week. Um, to go back to something we talked about with harm reduction and whether the abstinence-based programs, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, are okay with that. So I think. There was definitely a time where, you know, the maybe the specialists or people in the medical model said, hey, addiction's a disease, right? And then there was a whole lot of people that did not want to believe that. Maybe the pull yourself up by your bootstraps crew, um, they said, no, it's a moral failing, blah, blah, blah. And it, what it took for a lot of people was having it affect someone close to them for it to actually matter and for them to take a different look at it, Right. Like, oh, shit, my nephew, little Johnny, is struggling now. Maybe there, maybe he does need help. Maybe we shouldn't just lock him up or shoot him or whatever the fuck. Hope he dies like we did before, right? Not that that's changed everybody's mind. There's still people who see that, and they're like, fuck little Johnny. You know? right. I hope he dies in the gutter. Uh, but maybe that's also what we need to be more accepting of harm reduction. Maybe people who have this abstinence-based program need to realize that people close to them fucking die, and, and it's not so great. Right. That was one of the things when I got clean, it was like uh, with one of your first paychecks, go get a nice suit, because uh, if you stay around here, you're going to go to a lot of funerals. And if you don't stay around here, we'll bury you in it. And it's like, Jesus Christ. Right. Like that's yeah. that's the kind of information I got. But I, 
there's some truth to it. But maybe if we've seen enough deaths, we think that harm reduction is a good idea because it does actually prevent death, right? Yeah, and so that's how I've come around to harm reduction too is sort of that belief that, okay, the first thing we need to do is stop people from dying. Yes. You know, stop the deaths. Yeah. And we can't stop all of them. You, can, you know, people are going to die from addiction. It's it's an inevitable result. But if we can do some simple things to slow it down, you know, stop it somewhat, um, we should do those things. Because, you know, only if they're alive do they get the opportunity to recover. Right. Um, what we've also seen is with you know, this growth of fentanyl is the amount of overdose deaths have increased. Funny, I was listening to a NPR thing on fentanyl recently and Maryland and Massachusetts are the two states impacted the most by fentanyl. It didn't get into why I found that found like Maryland, really? Like why the fuck are we? But for whatever reason, yes, Maryland and Massachusetts seem to be the two states most affected by this increase in fentanyl. What's your guess as to why? We're a port city, maybe? I was wondering the same thing. We do have the port right there. So to go off a little bit into the fentanyl thing and and why overdose are so bad and and all that. um, So fentanyl is a synthetic opioid that they originally came up with in the 60s. And, you know, it was fine. It was invented in some college lab. It ended up in some what they call white papers and it's a college library somewhere and people didn't pay much attention to it you know whatever they felt like the the drugs that they had at the time were good enough they still made it and used it occasionally it was using like epidurals and stuff patches. like that yeah patches things like that um then we had the advent of the internet and in the early 2000s there was a huge boom of like getting all this information online and scanning all these papers and putting all this documentation online for public access and some basically backyard chemists came across this synthetic opioid that was super cheap and super easy to make and so if you were some backyard chemist you know i.e the people mixing up meth in their Right. Garage, you know, you could also make a synthetic opioid that was cheap and, you know, you didn't need poppy plants and stuff to make it. So it started sort of growing out of that, that you could really increase your profitability in the illegal drug trade for heroin if you could make your own synthetic, you know, heroin um, through fentanyl. So then we see now, since the illicit market is so big, that there's a lot of labs and places over in China that will manufacture this stuff in manufacturing plants. So they can do it on a large scale for even cheaper. They can sell it to drug dealers. Um, there's a book out now that I've just started listening to called Fentanyl Inc., where the guy who wrote the book literally just called one of these Chinese manufacturing plants and said, hey, I'm a drug dealer. I'm looking to get into the fentanyl market. You know, can you help me out? Um, I'd like to come over and tour your facility. And they said, fuck yeah, come on over. Because (laughs) over there, it's not illegal. You know what I mean? It's only illegal here. So over there, he could go over there, tour the plant, act like he wanted to buy fentanyl. And they took him on a tour of the plant where they're making fentanyl. Is this, like, is this like the Hershey tour where they give you a candy yeah. bar at the end or something? <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> and so, you know, that's 
the problem with fentanyl is that it's super cheap and easy to make. Um, so it's being cut into heroin, right. you know, or the street heroin. When you're doing it in an illegal, illegal, illegal market, the percentage being cut into each batch is different. So you might get, you know, a batch with 6%, a batch with 10%, a batch with 12%. And you don't know what that is. We don't have any way of testing that. And if you're a street user, you're not going to care. Right. You know, your normal guy's out. You're going to go to the next guy down the street and get whatever he's got. And, you know, you're going to use it. Well, it's so much more potent that small increase. You might do the same amount that you were getting from your other guy, from this new guy, and you'll overdose and die. Is it still a thing where using addicts tend to like see somebody go out off of a drug and then that's where they all want to go get it from? I know that was a thing when I was out uh, there. I don't know. I've been out of that. Yeah, using for so long. I don't know if there's like a new fear now, like oh maybe I should stay away from that. Or back then it was like oh my god, he OD'd off it. Let's all run over there and cop. Like that's must be the good stuff. Um, so I would, my hunch is to say that's not the case anymore. That the fear of fentanyl is right. scaring people, and I only say that based on there was a actually an app that some guys made, and I believe it's still out there. Um, they called themselves the bad batch boys hmm. and there was some guys down in baltimore who were sort of tracking like overdoses and stuff and getting like the names of what was out there and right. you could see like these are batches that you need to be really careful with or you need to avoid um and that was a movement down in baltimore city that they were trying to stop you know overdose deaths i mean they seeing so many people overdose um and that was just other people, I guess, in recovery or people sympathetic to people using that want to help. <laughs> what I really heard out of what you just said was that if the government legalized drugs and actually made them themselves, it would actually be fucking a thousand times safer because we would know how much was in each one and how much you're supposed to use. Oh, yeah, 100 percent. But that's that's a whole nother conversation. Oh, dear Lord. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. definitely against what the founding fathers believed in, I'm sure. But, oh, and this was another interesting thing. So in, in listening to like the history of, you know, addiction and, and all that and the history of sort of the war on drugs, a um, couple of things I found fascinating was, uh, so you used to be able to get like heroin and morphine and all those things were legal. You could actually buy syrups and cough medicines and, you know, home remedy oh, yeah. stuff, bottles and, you know, in the they had these dosages on the bottles where you would give it to kids and stuff for, you know, coughs or teething babies, you know, you were giving them morphine and shit and it just yeah. wasn't looked at the same as it is now. Um, then of course, obviously it was made illegal. A lot of that sort of, if you're, I don't want to say conspiracy theory ish, but if you follow the sort of general logic when prohibition ended, you had a sort of task force that needed something to do because they weren't out busting people for alcohol anymore. So they just turned it to illicit drugs and decided, well, drugs are the enemy of, you know, our, our society. If we eliminate drugs, that'll take care of the ills of society. And, right. you know, they sort of took all the energy that they were putting into uh, prohibition and directed that towards prohibition on drugs and just let alcohol be legal. So um, then they made it all illegal and, you know, it was harder to get. And that spurred this sort of black market 
growth in crime and right. you like say all the illegal uh the the different chemical makeups if you don't know what you're getting from where or who or what um one of the funny stories i heard that i thought was true and then i did some research and found out it wasn't and it tipped me off to like stigma was so the guy who originally first invented the hypodermic syringe uh it's i can't remember it's for his dr wood was his last name the rumor for a long time was that his wife was the very first person to die of a morphine overdose. And so I thought that was an interesting story. Like, oh, wow, you know, here's the guy who invented the syringe. Right. Then I found out that was not true, that that was like an urban legend. And immediately in my mind, I thought, oh, you know what that is? That's fucking uh, stigma. Mm -hmm. Like people want to, you know, make him feel bad. Make Oh, look, hypodermic needles are linked to syringe you know, using, and if right. you, you know, here's a guy who helped people use and his wife died, you know, that's what he gets. You know, like, <laughs> right, right. Sweet revenge yeah, and justice. Like some sort of justice. Yeah. We do love that. Uh, damn, you would touch on something back there and I don't even remember what it was. Uh, the definitely, oh, just the, the whole idea that, you know, all drugs are illegal and, you know, I'm not sure I'm a fan of that. I've had, I've had the discussion, how do you tell your kids not to do stuff that is legal? Uh, huh. So I kind of get that aspect of it. But look, I don't know a rational person, honestly, that thinks marijuana should be a tier one narcotic, right? No, <laughs> Nobody really believes that. And yet somehow it still is. And we were in refusal to change it because of some of these historic uh, decisions we've made. Um, so I think we've gotten a little away from the, the tone of overdosing and, and, you know, death, unfortunately. One thing to bring it back to that I, I neglected to mention earlier is, I've dealt with these people who overdosed and died and it's, it's unfortunate. And we go to viewings and we, we do these things as a community. Um, but some people are going to die clean, right? Like I, I have a sponsee now that's getting older in age and, and isn't completely 100% who he used to be uh, mentally. And I can see that and I'm aware of it, but like there is going to come a time when he passes, right? And I don't think that's going to be any easier to deal with just because he's clean. And I, and I don't know. I don't know if does ODing make it different. I know. I guess a lot of times it makes it younger. I was going to say, I think what you're seeing is a, a larger percentage of young people, you know, and, and as you might have heard on the news or whatever, they said that for the first time in I don't know how many decades, like life expectancy is actually going down. Um, instead of up forever, our life expectancy has been going up because right. life has gotten better and easier and things are way more available, food and clean water and sewer systems, you know, all make our lives, we can live longer on average due to suicide and addiction, which I would say you could probably link a lot of that suicide back to addiction. Not all of it for sure. To mental health some, for sure. Yes. To mental health for sure. Um, that because of those two factors, you're seeing younger people dying at alarming rates, like alarming rates. And so, you know, you're getting potentially some of our best and brightest people are dying before they ever have a chance to make an impact on the world. Right. You know, people are losing children and, and brothers and sisters and loved ones really young. And I mean, I've been to a lot of funerals. Um even with my mom, like who I was incredibly close to, but she was older. She had some health issues. She was suffering. That's very different 
than going to the funeral of a 20 something year old person, you know, right. who was just starting life or, you know, a person who had young children, you know, Ugh, like that's one of the toughest. Those life. are tough. You know, those are tough. So I probably should have like prefaced this whole episode with that. I still have a very, uh, not comfortable relationship with death. Um, on my, on my side of the street, like I'm, cold to it in a sense i think because so my father died 14 years ago it was a little out of the blue uh he had a surgery and then in december they found out because of that surgery they saw some weird stuff and went in and looked and it was lung cancer and then by the end of march he was gone and it seemed so abrupt and sudden and i i know it could have been much more abrupt and sudden you know because of a car accident or something but it really it shocked me it hurt me i didn't feel like he was old enough for that uh, I wasn't ready to be done with him for sure. And so I don't, I don't know how much I've ever completely dealt with it. Right. I, of course I've, I've, uh, dealt with it some, but there's a lot there that I feel like I'm a little shut off to because I just don't know how to process all of it. It's pretty painful. Um, and so from that standpoint, I do feel like I'm a little cold to people dying and I'm, I generally always say that when, when somebody close to me is going through something like that, like I'm really, please God, don't fucking talk to me. Cause I'm going to say something really <laughs> awful to you. I just know I am right. Like it happens. It's, we're all going to fucking die. Some shitty thing. And over time I've gotten better where at least the best thing I can do is just shut the fuck up. Right. <laughs> right. A lot of times I can do that right. now, but I, I don't want to be the guy to have to talk to people about death because it's, it's fucking hard. I, I'm more honest, I guess. Like, man, this is going to happen. Like, yeah. if you're dealing with an older adult that's, you know, getting more and more sick, like, they're, they're probably going to die. Yeah, I don't have a big fear of death. So I've heard this said, and I don't know if this is true, because I never use it in a uh, in a clinical setting. But they say, I guess they've used psychedelics for people that are at, like, end of life. Uh, for like end of life therapy for people that are getting towards the end of their life and really stressed about it. Mm. And that psychedelic experiences apparently make you more open to death. Um, and I've done a lot of psychedelics, like say not in any kind of clinical setting, but I'm not overly scared or paranoid of death. Um, right. I've been to lots of funerals. The best advice, like I never used to go to funerals and I don't go to graves or anything. Cause I don't, there's a lot of that stuff that I don't really, I don't say don't believe in, but you know, I, I don't think that your meat suit, where your meat suit is ma- buried really matters that much to right. me personally. I get it. People like it. They want to have a headstone and they have a place and memorialize. I get it. That's fine. It's not for me. So I don't go. Um, but you know, I, the funeral and, and the support is all for the living people yeah. you know that was the best advice i ever got it was like oh yeah because I, I like most things in life i make it about me well i don't like to go because it's uncomfortable and it fucking makes me sad and you right. know i don't deal with it in that way i just try to you know keep their life happy and then you know like most things in life like it's not about you asshole it's about the <laughs> other people and their suffering and the people right. that were close to this person and so when i look at it from that perspective it's like Oh yeah, I can show up and just go. Oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. The, the typical stuff that you say. I'm sorry for your loss. Yeah, you know, it's just such a shame. If there's anything you need, let me know. Um, because you, you know, and just from my experience with death, like you can't 
take away someone's pain. I don't think there's anything. We can't say the right thing that's going to make it better. We can't do something that's going to make them happy about it. Like, we can't fix that. Um, Unless you can clone people. (laughs) That empathy or that sympathy and just that knowing that other people are there to support you. Right. That's what makes a difference to people. Knowing that they have people around that love and care about them in their time of suffering. Yeah. I mean, I think the struggle was that because I still struggle with showing up for my feelings with it, that it's Mm -hmm. hard to empathize with somebody else's, right? Because I haven't really completely processed mine and I... I'm sort of aware of it, right? Like, I I know it's there. I think it's over time gotten better, and maybe that means that I've dealt with a little more of it over time here and there. Um, Maybe that's good therapy. You just got to start going out to funerals. Maybe. Maybe I need more of that. I don't (laughs) know. Exposure (laughs) therapy. Yeah, I mean, that is a thing, right? So maybe maybe I need more death in my life. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, that sounds terrible. I'll never say that again, I hope. (laughs) Um, so one of the things we had just, we talked about the legalization possibility and, and maybe how that could have some good effects. And so I kind of personally believe it. Look, I don't think we're going to stop people from trying to seek escape from life or pain or any of that, right? I think we're, people are going to get high, whether it's legal, illegal, whatever. I personally believe in having it legalized, having the federal government run it. I think it reduces crime, it reduces prison people, it reduces all kind of stuff, right? I'm for it. Here's where I could see some arguments against it just off the top of my head is like, there's people now, uh, a lot of them that think alcohol maybe shouldn't be legal anyway, which I look of the drugs that are out there. If you're going to have one that's legal, I don't think alcohol is the right one. That shit is poison, right? Yeah. Like I, I think that's a terrible choice. There's plenty of other, maybe that don't hurt you as much. Right. Um, but so there would be people that say, well, alcohol should not be legal. It's poison. Why would we legalize poison? I get that. And I also see in some of the other communities, like the the gambling community of recovery believes that gambling should be like illegalized. But that, I don't think that's going to stop fucking people from gambling, right? It's illegal in many forms now and people still do it. Right. I did it on a construction site uh, 12 years ago in different forms with a guy who definitely was not a bookie, right? Or not a legit one. So what what is the fucking answer then? Um, so we can look to evidence of what's worked in other places. Mm. Um, I believe it was Portugal has a good model. They were leading the world in addiction, overdose deaths, all crime rates, all things associated with addiction and using. Right. They went the route of what's called decriminalization, which isn't legalization. So you do still have some black market for drugs and stuff like that. But instead of having like a war on drugs, they said, we're just going to decriminalize it. So you can have whatever you have for your personal use. You know, it doesn't matter. We won't lock you up for possession of marijuana or, you know, drug possession offenses. And we'll take all the money that we're spending to lock people up and we'll put it into social programs and mental health programs. And so they would take people and get them like job training, job skills. They offered uh, tax incentives to businesses to hire people that were, you know, in some sort of programs. I don't know the specifics of the programs, but you would get into this program where you were learning these job skills and the business that hired you would get tax incentives to give you a job and sort of, build connections and build meaning and purpose to your life. 
and they found that the results of that have been phenomenal, have been very, very good. Um, so I think it starts in this country. I think probably decriminalization, you know, would be a starting point, but I don't even think that's a starting point for a lot of people. Although you say that, and I wouldn't have said that 10 years ago, I wouldn't have thought marijuana would be legal and look at how that's changed just in the past several years. Yeah, it's um, definitely got like a, a snowball effect, it seems. Right. So, you know, I think decriminalization is a starting point. Legalization is taking it to the next level of what you're talking about, where you would actually have, you know, whether it's government regulated or whatever, like we have with alcohol, where you have a regulatory agency that actually allows you to manufacture drugs. Right. Because even with decriminalization, you still have illegal drugs. There's still an Ill illegal drug market in Portugal. Right. Um, so you're going to still have some overdose deaths because of things like fentanyl and the non-consistency of what's on the streets and that sort of thing. Um, but I, I mean, me personally, I think it's a social problem more than it's a chemical or legal problem. Um, and I think until we start attacking some of the social issues that drive people to use, you know, that's, that's going to be where we're going to get the most bang for our buck. Hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, so I had heard about the, the Portugal thing um, a few years ago in a class that was about U.S. drug and alcohol policy. And I, I heard it seemingly was very well. I kind of looked into it afterwards and I saw some arguments against that it wasn't doing as well as they're claiming it is and all that. I Honestly, I haven't looked it up recently to, to see if there's a truth. I think people can use numbers to look at it however they choose to look at it. And not to get cut you off there but so that the, the argument becomes what is your goals right and so in portugal what you do see is a large drop in overdose deaths and drug-related crimes right those things are down um that doesn't necessarily mean addiction in and of itself is down and they like say they still have an illegal drug trade market they're still gangs they still have all those problems so it right. depends on what your markers are Good point. What you're Good deciding point. is success or not. And that depends on who you're talking to. It you know? definitely does. If you're talking to someone who, like in our community now, like there are people that believe, and I'll say this even like politicians and people in power within the Cecil County that think that, you know, addicts going out and dying is, yeah, that's what comes with the territory. That's just, you know, you made a choice to live that lifestyle and that's consequences of making those choices. Right. So to those people, you know, flooding the community with uh, Narcan or Naloxone or whatever the legal name of it is, right. you know, they don't care about that because they're not overly concerned with overdose death rates. So they don't want to take money and put it into reducing overdose deaths because that's not their concern. <laughs> so uh, just to touch on that, I feel like if I went and used today, it would be a choice. Right. I, I believe that. I could make that choice today. Do you feel personally like your initiation into using or addiction was ever a choice? Because I, looking back, I don't feel like I really made that decision. I just think it kind of became my life or maybe it was my life and then substances entered into it. I, I don't really know. So I heard an interesting, uh, and I can't remember the lady's name at this point, but she made this sort of, argument to that whether it's a choice or not um 
it's the same argument as whether it's a disease or not. Like those are the wrong questions to be asking if you want to know the truth, mm. um, because they did some studies. She was involved in a clinic that deals with mental health and addiction, and they did some studies where they would bring people in and they would say, you know, they knew what their drug of choice was. Say it was heroin. They would say, here's $10 worth of heroin or here's $20 cash. Which one do you want? 90% of those people took the $20 in cash. They didn't take, even though their drug of choice was heroin. So people that are caught up in addiction can still make rational choices. Um, so, you know, choosing to use or choosing not to use, I guess, I'm not sure what good it does figuring out whether it's a choice or not, you know, like, so, so what if it is a choice, you know, does that mean we don't care? Huh. Yeah, no, I see, I see you got a good point. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess because I don't believe it is, I'd like to have it proven that it's not because then I think we have more of a, a priority to do something about it. Right. We have more responsibility. If we can prove what I already believe, which is that it wasn't a choice. Now we have a responsibility to fucking help people and we can stop, you know, talking a bunch of dumb shit at the level of politics and policy, um, because that is what going back to the whole U.S. drug and alcohol policy class that I took, you know, five months of insane study just to learn that u.s drug and alcohol policy is not based on any fucking sensible research not, or anything yeah, completely based on who had the most money to influence this and yeah, what fucking terrible. racial group do we hate this week right. and it's like holy fuck really yeah all the evidence-based stuff gets ignored it's, yeah well it doesn't get ignored so what tends gets to twisted. happen is there'll be 10 studies <laughs> Nine of which confirm the same thing, one of which confirms something else, and they'll go with the one versus the nine because it confirms the bias that they want to yeah. participate in. But I guess, you know, again, my my thing with the choice thing would be something like this. If we reframe that question in another context. Um, so if you have a person who's, let's say, they're schizophrenic and they're on an antipsychotic medication. And we I don't know about you. I've known people like this. We had a neighbor like this. Um, when they go on their medication, they seem fine. They become rational. They can function. They do well. Right. And for whatever reason, somewhere along the line, they just go, fuck that. I don't want to take that medication anymore. They go off their medication, and then they're batshit. This was my neighbor. It was batshit crazy. And when I say that, I mean like legit, like psychotic, crazy person. Um, he had all kinds of issues. You would see him for years. He would be fine. And then he would go off his meds and he'd be in, you know, the corner store where they sell coffee, like pouring coffee on the floor and stuff. They had to call the cops for no rational reason. Just he probably was, still stigmatizing to say batshit crazy, but that's yeah. all right. <laughs> um, and you know, was he making a choice to come off his medication? I mean, he was rational in that moment that right. he stopped taking the medication, you know? And so I guess that's where I was going with that is, you know, we, as addicts, we still make logical and rational choices when we're using, but that doesn't mean that we're mentally healthy to make good choices. Right. <laughs> so look, I know, uh, there are plenty of people who get an antidepressant, feel better, and then decide they can stop taking it. And then they're depressed again. Shocking, right? Um, my father was one of those people. He, he did that shuffle. 
I did not really do coming off of my antidepressant the right way, per se, right? It was kind of a little on my own. I did include people in my network to watch over me a bit. Um, but can I just interrupt? Cause, oh yeah. So my wife went through a similar thing, and I would say the difference probably is, I would imagine, I'm going to take a shot in the dark here okay. and say your dad probably wasn't involved with any sort of 12-step support group or any sort of nope. outside support group at all. Nope. And while as a 12-step support group isn't technically, legally, whatever you want to call it, a mental health support group, that's what we help. Right. There's a lot of mental health oh, yeah. stuff that goes on with, with what we do in 12-step groups where you have sort of some people that are kind of keeping an eye on you, that are watching you, that yeah. will kind of hold you accountable, that you're going to be able to talk to, that, you know what I mean? So we have those pieces there. Whereas I think that's exactly what we need in combating addiction. Like, yeah, you can get people to make a choice to not use for a day, maybe not use for two days, maybe not use for three days, but they need supports if you want them to continue that for the long term. You know, right. they need mental health supports. They need, you know, just in essence, probably love and a fucking hug. You know, well, to one somebody of the to things, say, I care, I want to help you. Yeah. Well, one of the things that popped out when you said he stopped taking his schizophrenia medication, right? And I was like, why would anybody do that? But it, it's what made me think of all these people who get on antidepressants. And once you feel better, you're kind of right. hoping you don't need it anymore, I guess. And I hate to say maybe that's where the abstinence-based stigma pushes people. Maybe, maybe. I, so look, yeah, did I have people watching over me? Absolutely. Did I have new coping skills? Yes. But I honestly don't know why when I stopped taking it, it worked, right? Because even though these people were watching over me, I think that just gives me the ability to see that it's not working quicker, right? Because I have an outside view of me. I don't know why it worked for me and it doesn't for some, right? I, I really don't. I guess it was just that time for me. But I, I do understand why people stop taking it because you want to not have to do it right you want to be okay without it like that well, was my drive and you could go down a whole rabbit hole of uh ssris which are the anti yeah. uh depressant medications and selective if they serotonin work reuptake and what inhibitors. they do yes. and and if depression really is a medic you know there are different levels of depression whether you're clinically depressed or whether you're just made a bunch of shitty choices and now you feel sad about that like yeah. there's a lot of different levels even to that and so we figure out you know addiction is the same way not every addict has been in some neglected abused home suffering their whole life in some you know ghetto and now using as some relief like there's all levels of that all the way up to the highly functioning addict who's a lawyer at a law firm who still drinks every day right you know but has all the money and stuff and physical you know whatever you want to call it social uh acceptability you know but that person is still an addict I think the further we get, the more we learn uh, how we've kind of put autism on a spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. Everything that we encounter in life, especially at least mental health, is a spectrum, right? You're not uh, either at the 100% mark because you're a man or the 0% mark that you're a woman. Like everybody's on this continuum of somewhere between 0 and 100% of something, no matter what that is, man and woman, 
masculine and feminine, autism or not autism, depressed and not depressed. Like it, it's all on this line. You know, there's no black and white points of this. You either have it or you don't. And I would venture to say you're right. Addiction is probably on that line of, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it's how addicted you are or how much you suffer with the consequences of that feeling or what, but I doubt it's a black and white switch of being on or off. Well, and all that to say, you know, as you ask, like, what, what do we do? What can we do about some of this? Well, you know what? Probably guilt shaming and embarrassing some people works. <laughs> you know, like right. that probably works for a small amount of people. Locking some people up, throw them in a jail, probably works. Um, what we can say though is, does it work for the majority? Probably not. Right? Is it the the best answer? No. So what I think we get at, what I try to look at it as, you know, there isn't. Uh, an easy magical fix it's more of a system of care where we bring people in try to figure out hey what's going on with you what are what are your quote-unquote problems what's what is it in you that's pushing you to want to go kill yourself with drugs right um i hate to say but for some people that's just going to be the choice that they're going to make that this is just what i want to do i like getting high i don't like being in reality and that's the choice i'm going to make uh, we can't it isn't a save everybody. There's going to be a percentage of people that are always going to use and always be addicts and, you know, they're going to die from addiction. What we can do is try to eliminate or minimize some of that, you know, try to try to save as many people as we can and then not judge and uh, belittle and criticize the people who don't make the choice to get better. You know? Right. As right. we've seen, the war on drugs and the shame and guilt of society has not fix this problem at all no we lost yeah it's over uh, um the last thing i'd like okay. to say though about addiction is you know if you do choose to use or decide that you know abstinence space isn't for you and and you're going to go back out and use there are some basic things you can do to try to keep yourself safe from overdose um they are sort of at least in this immediate community and some other places um you can get narcan naloxone um, keep it with you if you can, probably a couple of doses, you know, right. from what I hear nowadays. Um, a couple of rumors. There is no uh, Narcan-resistant heroin or fentanyl out there right now. That's a myth. That's not a thing. Um, there is no, and there's people that will debate this, but there is no actual evidence of transmission of uh fentanyl through skin touching or any of that so right. if you help someone who's in an overdose you can't get high off of touching their skin even if they're wet and all that stuff that's actually all myth that's not true right um so if you're going to be someone that uses you know have narcan with you um use around other people preferably some people that care about you and that aren't just going to leave you in a fucking alley somewhere you know maybe some people that say, hey, look, man, if I go out, you know, right. here's my Narcan, fucking keep me alive. Um, and find groups. There are groups that, or places that, hey, if maintenance, I mean, if abstinence space isn't for you, find a community group or a support group for people that, you know, are okay with people that are using. You know, there are people in the community that still want to love you and care about you, even if you make the choice to use. You know, you're not a bad person. Yeah, we talk about opinions about harm reduction, and I actually uh, ended up 
having this conversation because I have all these random online conversations with somebody on Reddit uh, who is on Suboxone. And I can't, I can have whatever fucking opinions I want about harm reduction methods. What I can tell you is this individual, this younger person was so fucking excited talking about how they were going to be back to themselves for Christmas again and be able to be a part of their fucking family and mm-hmm. love people that they, they really truly love and not make completely self-centered decisions based around their addiction. And they were just so thrilled about it. And it's like, how the fuck can I judge that as bad? Right. They were a part of their life again. I'm sure their parents were fucking absolutely thrilled to have them back. Yeah. And I think great. Right. And and those are the most important aspects to me personally, the, the most important aspects are making sure people are getting the right mental health, you know, needs, met making sure they're getting you know counseling and supports for improving their lives right um and then making those family connections and building those bonds and and building those relationships back like those are the the foundations on which they can shoot for whatever their goal is in recovery you know as just right. like we've talked about you know initially in recovery my goal was to fucking stay out of jail <laughs> like that was the goal yeah. i don't want to go to jail anymore my life's a fucking wreck I hate living this way. I don't want that. Tired of ripping my parents off. Right. As I've stayed clean and and stayed that, my goals became a lot higher than not embarrassing or humiliating myself anymore. You know, now I have higher goals that I've been able to achieve because I've been able to maintain a long-term recovery path. Right. So just to wrap up here today, I guess if we're all done, uh, I did put out a question of like, hey, what can people do for tips on New Year's? Like, uh, so for me, a lot of holidays I've found, uh, and we're four minutes. Okay. A lot of holidays I found have, um, that I just realized when I got clean or, or stopped drinking or whatever it was that they don't have any purpose for me whatsoever. New Year's Eve was completely about fucking getting obliterated. Uh, St. Patrick's day. I'm sure there's, you know, most of the holidays really revolved around how much can I drink? Um, and so I don't have that anymore. So I just tend to ignore them. Honestly, I, I don't, those days don't mean anything to me. St. Patrick's day is it's fucking March 17th, right? That's it's just another day to me. But so people who are newer and still have a connection to that, what can you do? Um, some of the tips I got were don't use, obviously that's pretty brilliant, right? Um, they said volunteer for the crisis hotline that night, right? So most fellowships have some sort of crisis hotline where you can field calls from people who don't. I think that's a pretty good idea. One yeah. I wouldn't think of. Uh, somebody else said you can call that same crisis line and find out what meetings are open in the area. Probably if you need a meeting, uh, a lot of areas do some kind of marathon meeting um, that starts like New Year's Eve and then ends New Year's Day. So if you need somewhere to be. So just tips like that, ways to, to stay away from, you know, what seems to be what everyone else is doing on that day. Just remember, it's not what everyone's doing. There's plenty of us not doing the insane drinking or partying that we think is normal. Yeah. And it's just important, I think, to build a network of people that are sort of like-minded and share your goals and values. You know, if you're trying to get out of, you know, the, the party lifestyle, if you're in chaotic use and you know you're trying to get out of that lifestyle you know it's not a good idea to go try to hang around with your old friends <laughs> right <laughs> you got to try to build some new relationships and unfortunately that's awkward and weird and whatever but it may be something as simple as 
find a local church organization that's doing a New Year's dinner, find, you know, some outside thing that's doing, you know, a New Year's event and just take another person and go out to some different event with new people and have a good time, go to the movies, you know, do something different. Yeah, absolutely. Um, maybe changing up that idea, like I said, maybe changing up the idea that New Year's isn't really a party night. There's a lot of people out, you know, obviously drinking and driving and, you know, the chaos that comes with just being harassed by the cops if you're out and, and all that. Like, fuck, maybe it's a better idea to stay home. And we've done, you know, we've stayed home with our kids and gotten champagne and the fake champagne, the grape stuff that comes right. in the bottom. And, you know, look kids stay up with us we all try to stay up till midnight and watch the ball drop and do that just with our kids is just a stay at home kind of thing and then other years we've gone out and hung out with people in recovery and like a completely you know chemically environmentally free yeah if you don't believe a portion of the population is not using on new year's eve uh the tenant under crowd is very much so not using (laughs) if no one else right um they're pretty clean that night uh, so that's all I got. I think we're we're done talking about this. We've babbled quite a bit today. Uh, we will be back next week. Hopefully, I will finally not be fucking sick, and I'll be able to talk again. I'm looking forward to that. You got anything else? No, just stay safe this New Year's. Um, find a group of people that loves and cares about you, and bring in the new year with some positive change. Absolutely. Looking forward to 2020, and I think we're going to cover step one next week, so that's exciting. All right, we'll see you later. That wraps up this episode. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on your preferred platform. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to talk about or just want to add an opinion, contact us through Anchor, email us at recoverysortof at gmail.com, or find us on Twitter at recoverysortof.